Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at LOPC. And so whether you are in person or on the live stream, we are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us this morning, and we are glad that you are here. It is such a privilege to be able to gather together to praise and to glorify the Lord, to just be in his presence as God's children, as God's people. If you're visiting with us, if today is your first day here, we hope you were greeted very in a friendly manner, very warmly as you came in. We hope you were taken over to our visitor's area and given a, uh, a little goodie bag that has some wonderful things, lets you know a little bit about us as well as we would love to get to know you. And if this is for everyone. This is whether you're a visitor or a long-term member or a regular attendee. Whatever. I always like to say, if you're breathing, if you're breathing, there are friendship pads that are on the side of the aisle. Get them started. Pass them down to your neighbor and to your friend. It's just, like I said, very non-threatening, but it lets us know that you're here uh, as we seek to be as relational as possible. If you want to pull out your bulletins, I just want to highlight a couple things. I'm not going to read through everything. If I read through every announcement, the announcements would be longer than the sermon. We don't want that, do we? I know I don't want that. But one of the things, uh, it's time to celebrate a little bit. Where is my good friend Mike Palumbo? Mike, where are you sitting? You're in a, stay standing. Stay standing. So we are celebrating because yesterday, turn around, Mike's, Mike's in the back. He's, become, he's being a true Presbyterian that sits in the back row. <laughs> but yesterday, Mike passed with flying colors, probably one of the best exams ever, the exams from the Central Georgia Presbytery, and now Mike is officially a teaching elder in the PCA, and it's no longer a matter of if Mike and Whitney and Ellie are coming, but it's when. And I say when because here's the one more prayer request. They need to sell their house up in Virginia. And so we very much want to do them. But Mike and Whitney and Ellie, welcome. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. Tomorrow evening is a very special evening. You know, a major, major part of our LOPC 2.0 vision comes out of Jeremiah 29 that just in a nutshell says, what is the purpose of the church? We live, in, we live kind of as exiles. We're not at home. Our home is heaven. But how are we to live? We're to live by seeking the prosperity, the peace, what the Hebrews would call the shalom of the city. In other words, we're to love and care for our community. And so we have a very special event tomorrow evening. Bob Delaney, who has a very special background, you'll hear more about that tomorrow, but he'll be here tomorrow night speaking on trauma and resiliency, and every single one of us has experienced pain and hurt and loss and trauma of some sort. Be in prayer for this event. We want this. The doors open at 6 o'clock, and then at 6.30 uh, will be Mr. Delaney. He'll be sharing, but keep that in prayer as well. And then we're going to, this is a real, this is an exciting, exciting day. We're going to relaunch something that was done a while ago, but the deacons have decided, the elders have decided, it's time to relaunch it. There is a ministry called Deacon Assistants. Now, you ask what Deacon Assistants are and what they do. You know, the deacons have the responsibility of the Ministry of Mercy, caring for the facilities. It's a ministry of service and help 
And so we are interested in, this is, this is open to everyone. So male, female, young person, boy, girl, whatever. If you are interested in helping out the deacons, you will see on the table outside both a sign-up sheet and then kind of a list of different areas that you can serve in. Take a look, grab one of those sheets of areas to serve in, sign up if you have an interest. A deacon will be contacting you in the coming weeks. We're going to kind of launch this over the next two to three weeks. A deacon will be in touch with you. It's a way, you know, they kind of have a saying that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. We're kind of looking to flip that a little bit, flip that switch a little bit. You know, we are a covenant family. We all belong to each other. It's good if we all work together. And so we want to launch that as well. There are a lot of other things. We have a missionary visit coming later in February. A lot going on that we're excited about in terms of the life of the church. And now we're here, what the church is really all about. Glorifying God, enjoying Him forever, gathering in worship, being caught up in His wonder and beauty. And so as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts this morning for worship.
In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our strength, our shield, our song, our cornerstone. Our call to worship is from Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Father, we are here to praise You. May we be caught up in Your wonder, Your beauty, Your majesty, Your greatness. May we be reminded of the truth that in Christ alone our hope truly is found. May we be renewed in knowing that You are our strength, that You are our song, You are our cornerstone. Father, thank You that Jesus is raised from the dead and ruling and reigning and present here amongst us this morning. May we truly glorify You. May You increase as we decrease. We invoke Your name to join with us that we would glorify You and richly enjoy You. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. every week, because that is so true of my heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Am I alone in that? Am I the only one who tends to wander so easily from God? This is why every week in the liturgy, after we have, because you know what we do when we go through worship? We are, in essence, rehearsing the gospel story. The gospel story begins with God. That's why we always start with a call to worship, an invocation, and a hymn of praise, because we are 
tuning our hearts to the God-exalted and holiness of God, and that's the nature of worship. And when you see the glory of God, you're automatically confronted with your own sin. You're confronted with prone to wander. I'm not gripped by the holiness of God the way I ought to be. And so we confess our sins. The Apostle Paul, in a way, confessed his wandering soul when he said, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody relate to what Paul is saying? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Friends, take a few moments. Do business with the Lord. Come clean with the Lord. Engage with him. Be real. Be authentic. What are, where are the areas of your life where you're prone to wander? What are the areas of your life where you say, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't get myself. This is an opportunity for us to return to the Lord. And in a few moments, I will lead us in and we will pray together our corporate confession of sin. Let us pray. Let us pray together. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, cleanse us from all our offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength. Through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. And the assurance of pardon, right after Paul has talked about sin and not understanding his own actions, he comes out and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friends, receive that good news. 
There is therefore now no condemnation. You don't go from being condemned and then confessing your sins and being not condemned. If you're in Christ, condemnation is gone. It's a category that doesn't exist for the Christian. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Drink deeply from that and let us stand and continue to praise the Lord, singing together 10,000 reasons.
Let's continue to worship by going to the Lord in a time of prayer. We will pray together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The psalmist did say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and faithfulness, who satisfies you with good things so that your heart is renewed like the youth's. Father, may we bless you for your love and your kindness and your greatness. May we be caught up in who you are. It is so easy for us to always be thinking about ourselves, to make it about us. To even be thinking, you know, I could be up here even praying and thinking to myself, how is this going? Are we doing well? Forgive me, Lord. We make it about us in so many things. Lord, help us to be consumed with who you are, our Heavenly Father, ruling and reigning from heaven, your name being hallowed. We long and we ache and we pray for the coming of your kingdom. We pray that we would be about your will being done on earth, replicating the life of heaven here on earth. We need and depend upon you for daily sustenance and bread physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. We are forever in need of forgiveness. And we seek to be a people of forgiveness. And we pray for holiness of life, that you would keep us from temptation, but deliver us from evil and from the evil one. Father, we pray for specific things this morning. We praise you for Mike and Whitney and Ellie Palumbo. We praise you for their lives. We praise you, Father, for Mike's calling. His calling into ministry, his calling to be on our pastoral staff team, working in evangelism and discipleship here at LOPC. We thank you, Father, for their marriage. We thank you for Ellie, their daughter. We praise you that you were faithful and kind in granting Mike's success with the Central Georgia Presbytery. And we ask, Father, that you would sell their house quickly. We're eager to have them down here. We're eager to be moving forward and moving out into this community. And so, Lord, we ask for your faithfulness and your favor. And, Father, when we think about moving out into this community, we thank you for Lake Oconee. And even though it is an area that has been blessed by you mightily and richly, and we praise you for those blessings. We recognize that behind closed doors there's hurt, there's pain, there's trauma. So, Father, we pray for tomorrow night's event with Bob Delaney. We pray your spirit to be upon him. 
We pray, Father, for the people you have chosen for us to have the opportunity simply to love and to care for. That they would come and be a part of this evening. And Lord, we pray that we know that when trauma occurs in any of our lives, one of the things that erodes is trust. That questions arise about your nature. Can we trust you? Can we trust people? Can we even trust ourselves? Father, we pray that we would earn the right to be heard with people, that you would give us the ability to care, to listen, to be curious, to hear people's stories. Sometimes the church is even the problem. And we pray, Father, that we would not be defensive, but humble and listen. And so we pray, Father, your blessing upon this event. And Lord, trauma occurs all over the place. We think of what's happening in our cities right now, Memphis, Atlanta. Lord, there's such pain, there's such hurt. Lord, teach us to be a people that say, Lord, thy kingdom come. We long for the day when righteousness and justice kiss. And we ask, Father, that we would be a people fervent in spirit, constant in prayer, crying out for your kingdom, and that we would be people of the kingdom. We don't have answers, and forgive us when we are so certain as to think we do have all the answers. The only answer we have is Jesus. May we embody Jesus and offer Jesus to the world, beginning with our community here at Lake Oconee. And we pray, Father, fill us with the Spirit as we come before you in your word in just a few moments. Lord, I cry out, pour out your Spirit to apply, to not just give us good information, but to quicken our hearts that your word would be sealed to our hearts, your word would transform us. For we recognize that it is your word that is eternal, and we praise you for your word. So Father, as we continue to worship, help us to continue to glorify you, recognizing that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We are returning this morning to the book of Romans. So if you have Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. And before I read the text and before we enter into things this morning, uh, three weeks ago, Evie and I made a decision that has me on almost a daily basis questioning my own sanity. Sixty years old, I am at least, I won't tell Evie's age, that's at least the right thing to do. Sixty years old and I decided we would get a puppy. Okay, so little Maggie entered our house, and you know why Maggie stays in our house? She's cute as a button. She's adorable, it just gets to the... But let me tell you, I'm getting old. I can't chase that dog uh, anymore. And my poor wife, she's the one who recognizes. Evie sits there and goes, okay, Jeff, you have to get up every morning for work and all of this. So she's getting up at 1 in the morning and 1.15 in the morning and 1.30 in the morning and 1.40, you know, trying to, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but only a, a little bit. But here's the spiritual lesson that ties in with our sermon this morning. Dogs remind me they're not all that different than we are. And here's what I mean. They make everything about themselves. If you thought one dog was selfish, oh, two dogs is through the roof. Because you give a bone to Gracie, and now Maggie has to have that bone. And then you give a bone to Maggie, and Gracie's over there getting it. And you tell one to lay down and the other one's chasing it. They are about themselves. And they have good masters because you know who else is all about us? Not just Evie and I. Raise your hands. We are always all about ourselves. Now what does this have to do with Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9 is all about God defending, or Paul defending God's righteousness, God's justice, God's faithfulness. You know, the text begins. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? And of course, he's going to say, by no means. And he's going to enter into, and yes, we're going to cover it this morning, this controversial doctrine known as the doctrine of election. Sometimes preachers who are preaching through the whole counsel of God have to confront the tough topics and so we are going to spend, and then, and then questioning my sanity, we're not going to just spend one week, we're going to spend two weeks, see I'm giving you a heads up, this week and next week on the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. But here's my caution, challenge, and maybe my wishful thinking, my hopeful thinking. One of the things that makes election controversial is because we tend to approach it like we do so many things in life, making it about us. I need to understand, is God fair? How does God choose? What about this? What about those who've never heard? We ask all sorts of questions that the Bible is not necessarily addressing, and rather than understanding it from the standpoint of how the Bible itself chooses to present it, we get caught up about ourselves. So I'm going to kind of issue a warning to myself, as well as to all of us. Let's not make it about us. Let's approach this topic and this text, how the Bible approaches it, and who knows, maybe we're going to get caught up in the absolute beauty 
and wonder of this precious doctrine. So friends, let's read together Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray, Lord, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would show us what it is you will, and that you would transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of the book of Romans, Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 11, the issue that Paul is dealing with is, has God's word failed? Now, why is that the issue? The issue is, here's Paul talking about how the Gentiles, remember he's speaking to a church that has two predominant cultures in it. So it's a little cross-cultural ministry. Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And so he's talking about all of these promises that have come true. He ends chapter 8 with this tremendous exuberant promise, for we know that neither death nor life angels nor demons, principalities nor powers, height nor depth, nor the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now it would be easy if he kind of just said a big amen and the book here, let's go out to lunch, and everybody would be happy, right? But you can almost see there's half the church kind of going, um, excuse me, Paul, and this would be the Jewish half that's sitting there and saying, what about our brothers and sisters? What about our kinsmen? What about our families that haven't believed these promises? Has God's word failed? Can God be trusted? Is God faithful? And Paul, so you have to, everything we interpret in chapters 9 through 11 has to be through that grid, through that lens. Because that's the big picture. That's the context of these chapters. And so it's in the midst of this that Paul is saying, what shall we say then? Because he's responding to these questions. Is there injustice? In other words, is God not fair? Is there injustice on God's part? And of course he answers that by saying, 
by no means. And what he goes on to do is to expound this particular doctrine, the doctrine of election. Now, it's a controversial doctrine, and we need to approach it with a great deal of humility and allow for a great deal of mystery. There is a lot of things that are simply not addressed in the Bible. And if they're not addressed, do you know how we need to approach them? With the words, I don't know. It requires some discipline on our parts. If the Bible addresses it, we accept it. If the Bible doesn't address it, we submit and stop. I love this quote from St. Augustine who said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. There's a challenge in that because, let's be honest, and this is how I introduce things, we make everything about ourselves. That doesn't just mean moral or immoral. I struggle with this every day. I wrestle with anxiety and fear. I kind of go, I talk to a mentor of mine this week. He asked how things are going. Jeff, how, how are things going with LOPC 2.0? And I go, they're going great. And then he says, let's dig down deep. I said, ah. Really, do we have to? Yes. Okay. I'm terrified. <laughs> you know, what if this doesn't work out? What if that doesn't work out? What if we try this and it fails? And he said, so what's the key? What word are you saying an awful lot there? And I'm like, oh, McKay, stop it. <laughs> I. The key thing we're saying is I. We make everything about ourselves. Now, here's my proposition to you this morning. The doctrine of election is an unbelievably, intensely practical doctrine. And without this doctrine, you really can't experience any true security in life. It is this doctrine, the doctrine of election, that helps us to be secure in an insecure world and helps us to come out of so to speak, that gravitational pull a little bit of making everything about ourselves. So why does the doctrine of election, is, why is that the only guarantee of true security? We're going to look at it from two perspectives. First of all, election is necessitated by our condition. And secondly, election defines our experience. Number one, election is necessitated by our condition. Okay, verse one, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, it's very important. Paul is not only teaching us what to think, he's teaching us how to think. And we have to remember, and again, here we are interpreting Paul, that what Paul is doing is he's interpreting and applying Jesus and the message of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus to particular churches. So it's very important for us in interpreting and understanding Paul to first look at Jesus and see what he has to say about a particular doctrine. This is one of the reasons we're taking two weeks to do this. Because even though I've kind of alluded a little bit to Romans 9, 14 to 24, we're coming back to that very passage next week because I want us to kind of take a big picture view of this, kind of we're flying over it from 32,000 feet, 
I wonder, I'm not a pilot, is that the actual feet you fly over something? The bottom line is you're get, we're taking a big picture view of this because when we interpret Paul, we have to go, what did Jesus teach about this? And one important place to look at is John chapter 6. If you have Bibles, turn with them. If not, just listen. I didn't have these printed. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is making a startling claim. He says, I am the bread of life. And you know what happens next? He gets in, shall we say, a heated debate, a heated discussion with the Jewish leadership about this claim. And in the midst of this heated discussion, you know the kind of discussions it is. The level gets up, the level goes up, the level goes, you know. He's in this heated debate with the leadership. He says this in verse 44. So I'm not reading a large part of the scripture, so you can listen. He says, John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, do you hear what this is saying? See, this is not talking about all the things that we typically argue about when it comes to the doctrine of election. You see any mention of free will here? I don't. He's not arguing about the fairness of God. He meant what he is talking about is he mentioned something that is absolutely true of the human condition. It is the human condition that necessitates election. See, if we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, this has to be our starting point. He says, no one can come. Do you know what that's talking about? That is talking about our ability. Not our freedom, not our free will, not our liberty. That's ability. No one can come to Jesus. No one can receive Jesus. No one can have faith in Jesus. No one can believe in Jesus. It is talking about ability. You've heard me give this illustration before. No matter what, you could say to me, Jeff, let's go out to the pavilion, let's go out to the basketball court, and I want you to slam dunk the basketball. I got a lot of liberty, a lot of free will. Let's go do it. And I love the game of basketball. I will get all of my five foot three inches and my one inch vertical on a good day. And you can hold any consequence. You can hold any, uh, anything to me. Hold a gun to my head, do whatever, and say, Jeff, you have to do this. I've got one problem, don't I? I don't have the ability to do it. I simply can't. It's my condition. The starting point for the doctrine of election is the condition of our life. Paul put it elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I, I'm not making light of this, but what can a dead person do? You can give them all the free will. You can give them all the liberty. They don't have the ability to believe. Unless someone from the outside intervenes, opens your mind, opens your heart to the beauty and the truth, we don't have the ability. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws them. I love how one pastor put it 
who said the doctrine of predestination is like a piece of hard candy. It has a very hard exterior, but once you get inside, it is incredibly sweet. It is hard on the outside, but if we are willing to get inside, it is unbelievably sweet. That's my goal here this morning. I want us to taste the sweetness of that candy. And look at this text. First of all, what does it teach us when it says no one can come? We are learning that God is a God of sheer grace. That means no one can come means that there's nothing in you that earned God's love. His love was unconditional. See, think about it. If you ask somebody, why are you a Christian? Typically, they may reply something like, because I believe. Fair enough. Why do you believe? Well, because I repent of my sins. Okay, good. Why do you repent? Well, I guess because I admit I'm a sinner. See, the logic is, though, if we are chosen because we believe or repent or admit we're a sinner, that means there's something in us that makes us a little bit better. We're more open. We're more humble. We see our sin. And see, look at this. If you're chosen because you believe, then what if you lose what you did to cause God to choose you? If you earned God's love in any way, you can also unearn it. And that is not very secure. See, God's grace is not that he chose you because he foresaw that you would believe. That is not grace at all. See, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7, it has this very interesting verse. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the earth he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see what God is saying there? He's saying, I love you not because of anything, not because you were serviceable, not because you were great, not because you were numerous, not because you were talented. I love you because I love you. See, and again, think about this. It comes down to our condition. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, Imagine your next 100 meals are put in front of you. One on your right and one on your left. On your left, there's steak and chicken and pasta and lobster tail, pie, dessert, great things. And on your right, monkey brains with excrement coming out of it and flies crawling all around it. How many times are you going to choose the meal on your right? Now, you're free to. That is, you have the liberty to choose the meal on your right, but you would never want to. It's disgusting to you. You don't want to. Now, is that a lack of free will? No, it's a lack of desire. See, we need to recognize election is necessitated by our condition. But next, election also defines our experience. See, how does election define our experience? Well, election is the only thing that can give you humility. Election teaches us that we are no better than anyone else. There is a great danger 
It's a danger we all face. I feel it all the time. It's the danger of comparison. You know, we had presbytery yesterday. Mike Pass did a great job with his exams. You know, presbytery, general assembly, those things, I don't know if my fellow elders ever feel this, but I always feel this tension. Maybe I'm just the greatest sinner around here. I don't know. But it's always so easy for me to begin comparing myself. You know, to kind of take a look and go, huh, how big are the other churches in our presbytery? Oh, they're bigger than we are. Ooh, I feel bad. Oh, we're bigger than them. <laughs> Election absolutely levels all of us. It says there is no distinction, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it also, if there's no distinction, it means that we can be hopeful for anyone. Because if we are a Christian, that's, we're a living miracle. Anybody can become a Christian. Nobody is outside the pale of God's grace. We have to recognize, see, comparison is such a danger for us. We're always walking around going, he's better than me. This one's great. This one's not so great. Paul Koistra, who was a missionary, worked with MTW, leader in the PCA, he always liked to say to seminary students, we have to stop saying anyone is great. There is no one great. There's no great man. There's no great woman. There's only a great Jesus. Election reminds us that there's only a great Jesus. See, think about this for a second. We don't know enough about how God chooses for us to judge God. But we do know what the Bible tells us about how he works. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So what do we know about how God does work? God doesn't choose the ones the world chooses. He chooses those the world despises. And that gives us both a great sense of humility, but it's also the only thing that can make us feel beautiful, special, worthwhile, valuable. See, it gives us a healthy self-concept. God chooses the lowly things of the world, the despised things of the world, and says it's all about him. It's all about his glory. Think about Jesus called the friend of sinners. Think about who he chooses. He chooses Zacchaeus, that wee little man. I love Zacchaeus, by the way. And he says, come down out of that tree, Zacchaeus. I must come to your house. And stay. Can you imagine how Zacchaeus felt? Think about the sinful woman who breaks into the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee's banquet, great party that he's having for Jesus, and is overcome with emotion, begins to cry, and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears. Why? Because her many sins 
have been forgiven. She saw herself as the huge sinner that she was, and she saw the kindness of Jesus' heart. Think about Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus says to Matthew, come follow me. What does Matthew do? Not only does he follow Jesus, but what's the first thing that we learn he does? He begins to have all his tax collector, sinful friends over and invites Jesus to join with him with his fellow tax collectors. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Think about the prodigal son. And when he goes and he wastes his life, talking about a poor steward, he takes the inheritance while his father is still alive. He squanders it, and so it's gone. He has no more resources. He comes to see a need. He's willing to just work as a hired hand in his father's house. But what does his father doing? Showing the boundless, sheer, unmerited grace of our heavenly father. What does he do? He lavishes him with love and affection. Kills the fattened calf. Throws a party for him. See, friends, we like to make it all about us, and that is so sad, because when we're making it about us, you know what we're missing out on? We're missing out on the fact that Jesus is the friend of sinners. We're missing out on the heart of Jesus towards us. When we're so much trying to put our best foot forward, trying to always, and I'm not saying we don't do things to excellence and we shouldn't do things well, but when we're so absorbed about that, again, who are we thinking about? And what are we missing out on? We're about to close and we're about to sing again one of my favorite hymns, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Jesus, Lover of My Soul. What if instead of fighting, and you know, do we understand everything about the doctrine of election? No. But what if we get caught up in the fact that, okay, I couldn't come to Jesus. No one can come. And so it has to be God's sheer grace. And he opened my heart to see his kindness, to see his love, to see his beauty, what if we got caught up in the wonder of his grace and then offered that grace to others? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this rich doctrine that, yes, on the outside may look like it's a hard piece of candy, but on the inside can be so sweet. And I pray that our hearts may be melted to taste the sweetness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners.
friends, do not be afraid to own your sin, to say you're a sinner, because guess what? Jesus, then, is your friend, because he is a friend of sinners. Open your arms wide, your hands wide, and receive the blessing of the Lord, the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you.